0: Well, from Romans chapter 13, we've jumped off into a study of good citizenship, looking at what the rest of the Bible has to instruct us concerning government and its role in society, as well as how to respond to different forms of government, both foreign and domestic. And we looked last week into the first point on our outline on Good Citizenship 201, looking at the subject of oppression. And so a quick review here as we're going to be picking up where we left off last week. We began last week by looking into 1 Samuel chapter 8, where... God first instituted a king for his people, the nation of Israel. Of course, they had local government, they still had family, the basic building block of society, but they had no central authority that was over all of the tribes of Israel. And when God established that central authority of the kingship, he warned the people about the practice of the king who will reign over you, that he will take, and that you will become his slaves. And so, central government, central authority, as it's removed from the family, as it's removed from local relationships and kind of like a tribe type situation, it's going to become more oppressive the further government is away from the people that it is governing. That's a biblical principle here in 1 Samuel chapter 8. And we must expect that the price of having a central government that is in control of our nation is that we are going to become tax slaves and we are going to lose certain freedoms as a result of having that central government. And that is God's will for us to submit to that government because we live in an imperfect world, we can expect government to be imperfect, and there is a cost for having a strong central authority as we do have a need for a strong central authority in the world that we live in. Now, if we should suffer some form of domestic oppression from our central government, then the Bible instructs us that we should suffer willingly that we do not rebel against the central authority, we do not try to undermine the central authority, but the Bible says it is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. This ties in very well with the instruction that Paul gave us in Romans chapter 13, which was the baseline, it was citizenship 101, that you are to submit to the government, you are to pay taxes. I want to be very clear on that as we go and talk further about Oppression, foreign and domestic. So then we were reminded in Jeremiah chapter 27 last week how God is the one who establishes authorities and that this includes foreign nations and foreign powers. And in the book of Jeremiah, as we read in our scripture reading today in Jeremiah 28, the power that was oppressing the nations of the world at that time was the king of Babylon. By military might, by military strength, Babylon had conquered the other kingdoms and subjected them to his central authority. And again, the further removed from a people the authority is, the more tendency there is towards oppression. And in this case, God instructed his people in Jerusalem, through the prophet Jeremiah, to submit to the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar. That this was a time in history where it was wise, it was God's will, it was the best course of action, to submit to foreign oppression. But that's not true for every situation that we find ourselves in. We learned last week that Hezekiah, who had lived a good hundred years before Jeremiah, that the Lord was with Hezekiah and Hezekiah was correct to rebel at that time against the foreign oppression of the king of Assyria and not serve him. So, As you look at the history of the nation of Israel, there were times when it was God's will that they would be oppressed by a foreign nation. It was times when it was God's will for them to be free from foreign oppression. And the key was knowing the will of God, listening to the word of God, having that wisdom from God. And those same principles would apply to nations today, not just to ancient Israel. Last week we did talk about how the Bible warns us about the danger of rebelling against a strong central authority. If it's a foreign oppressor, if it's a domestic oppressor, you want to be very sure that you are acting wisely and counting the cost if you think it's a time for rebellion. The Bible says, My son, fear the Lord and the king. Do not join with those who do otherwise, for disaster will suddenly arise from them, and who knows the ruin that will come from both of them. So here the, the power of the central authority is likened unto the power of God. As far as human authority goes, there's an absolute power, there's an absolute authority that is vested in a king who is at the top of the pile of kings. All right? He's there at the center and, and you want to fear that power. Don't take it lightly. Don't think that it's an easy thing to throw off an oppressive government. Many people have learned that lesson the hard way. And so this is a verse I wanted to share with you, another wisdom verse, because when they're dealing with what do you do in this situation, what do you do in that situation, well, you want to look at the wisdom literature in Scripture. You want to act wisely. You don't just want to be told, well, this is what you always do or this is what you always don't do. But there are situations where you do have to be able to evaluate that situation and act in accordance. And so Ecclesiastes 10.20 warns us, again, about... Cursing the king or the rich. We're talking about the rich and the powerful. There are people in this world who are rich and powerful, and that's not you. There's nobody rich and powerful in this group. You know, some Christians have gotten the idea that, well, all Americans are rich. All Americans are powerful. And, and yeah, if you're going to compare us to poor people around the world, relatively speaking, we're rich. But when the Bible's talking about the rich, It's not just talking about the average citizen who is subject to the law. We're talking about, in our cultural context, these would be the the multi-billionaires who have enough money, who have enough power, who have enough influence that the law doesn't really apply to them the same way that it applies to everyone else. Those are the rich and the powerful according to the scriptures. And the Bible says, Even in your thoughts do not curse the king, nor in the privacy of your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, a little Twitter, 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 carrying your voice, or some winged creature will tell the matter. All of us here today have brought with us, and we carry with us, perfect listening devices, perfect spy devices. The rich and powerful's most wildest dream has come true, and we all have spy devices with us at all times. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice. It just travels through the air somehow. The magic, amazing. Be careful what you say. Be wise. Guard your lips. There are rich and powerful people in this world that you do not want to make enemies of unnecessarily. Mark chapter 6 verse 18 Here we're moving into the new part of the sermon. Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6. I want to talk about how though rulers have this supreme authority, how they are kind of above the law, that does not mean that they are above God's law. It does not mean that rulers are above rebuke or criticism. Now, I've just told you from the book of Proverbs that it's unwise to curse the king or the rich even in private conversation. But that does not mean that Christians should fear the king and the rulers and the rich and powerful so much that we do not speak truth to those who are in power. There is a proper time and place for that. So that's why I want you to contrast and compare the wisdom of Solomon with the actions of John the Baptist here in Mark chapter 6. We're going to be picking it up there about halfway through the chapter Start in verse 14. So, Jesus is sending out the 12 apostles, and King Herod heard of it in verse 14. For Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in Jesus. But others said, He is Elijah. And others said, No, Jesus is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard about Jesus, he said... John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. So he believed the first story. Notice what it comes next. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife and Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not, and you can go on and hear the rest of the story about how Herodias did get her husband to put John the Baptist to death. John the Baptist is a prophet of God, and as a prophet, he was given, I think rightly here, although the Bible doesn't confirm that this was the right thing for john the baptist to do whenever you're reading the bible you want to try to see is this just describing what someone did or is the bible encouraging us to do the same thing and there's a lot of history recorded in the bible and not everything everyone does is exactly what we're supposed to do but in this case i think that i would read in context that john the baptist is doing the right thing by telling herod the truth about his immoral marriage God had laws about marriage and divorce. King Herod is breaking God's laws about marriage and divorce. And so the people would be asking questions, you know, how come God's law applies to us, but Herod can do whatever he wants. And so John the Baptist, he's courageous enough, he knows the wisdom of Solomon, he knows that if you start to speak against King Herod that there could be dire consequences for your life and liberty. But he's willing to do it because of his love for the truth and his love for God's people. So the divine right of kings, so to speak, doesn't mean that they cannot be questioned or challenged at the proper time in the proper way. Rulers are not above rebuke and criticism. Just know that if you do take it upon yourself to be the instrument of rebuke and criticism, that there may be a price to pay. And you need to be willing to pay that price out of love for God and love for the truth. Last week we did take a look at 1 Kings chapter 12 and our point in 1 Kings chapter 12 was how rulers can delegitimize themselves and be overthrown in a just manner through oppressing their people too much. There's a spectrum of oppression that rulers live in. And if they move too far, too quickly to the oppression side and they don't listen enough to the people, then they can lose their power. And the historical example of that in the life of Israel is there in 1 Kings chapter 12 where Rehoboam, Solomon's son was petitioned by the people to reduce their taxes and he refused to do so but instead told them that he was going to increase their taxes and as a result he lost the heart of the people and the ten northern tribes set up their own nation and that continued on throughout the rest of the history of the kings of Israel for hundreds of years. The dynasty of David never gained re-control of the northern tribes of Israel and won't be reunited until Christ comes and rules over all of Israel. So here's a, a historical example of a foolish king who oppressed his people too much. Now all kings oppress, but if you do it too much, then you may push people to the point of rebellion, civil war. Though God deferred the civil war at Rehoboam's time, there was conflict between these two nations in the resulting centuries of their history side by side. So those are the main points that I wanted to highlight and recap from last week. And with that in mind, then, we're ready to move on to the second part of our outline. And so I put here on this slide, Good Citizenship 301, since this is our third lesson in the series. Oppression, foreign and domestic, that was the 201 part. Now we're moving into the civil disobedience, and we'll call that Good Citizenship 301. Don't come back next week expecting a class on Good Citizenship 401. Because I'm not ready to teach that class yet. I'm still learning myself. I'm giving you everything I know and hopefully not going beyond God's Word in Good Citizenship 301. So, Romans 13 is very clear. It's very strong on its message that it gives to us to submit to the governing authorities, no exceptions. There's never a time when it's right to disrespect properly constituted authority. But, as we said... There are times where you have new authorities rising up because old authorities delegitimize themselves, and then you have to decide, am I going to side with the old authority? Am I going to side with the new authority? And those are the times where you need a lot of wisdom. A lot of wisdom is needed in those times. But we are always submission to authority, whether it's new or old, right? So the question arises then, in our context, good citizenship here in the United States in the 21st century, what is the authority that we submit to in the United States? Is the authority the elected officials? Is the authority the unelected bureaucrats? Is the authority the Constitution? Is the authority the federal government, the state government? And the answer to all those questions is yes. They are all authorities. They're competing authorities. They're warring authorities. And that God has set up all of these different authorities within these United States, for there is no authority except that which is from God. So the bureaucrats have been set up by God. The unelected bureaucrats are established by God. The Constitution has been established by God. And the bureaucrats are subject to the Constitution, and the Constitution is subject to the the bureaucrats. It is all a mess of competing authorities just like it was in the ancient Middle East of the Babylonian authority, the Assyrian authority, the northern tribes of Israel authority, the southern tribes of Israel authority. and All these authorities are fighting with one another for more authority. That's the situation that we find ourselves in. And so we submit to the authority. But that doesn't mean that we can't ask the authorities to also submit to the authorities that they're supposed to submit to. And it's all a complex system. All right, so while it, the baseline command to submit to the governing authorities is very simple, how that plays out in the midst of all of these competing authorities is not that simple. You understand? We don't have to treat our government bureaucrats as if they were supreme authorities without any authority over them because that is not the case. Our governing authorities are subject to governing authorities. We can appeal to the courts. You know, everyone wants to talk about exceptions to the command of Romans 13. Oh, yes, we obey Romans 13, except when this happens, or except when that happens. And that's not the right way to think about it. We don't obey the Word of God except in certain situations. We always obey the Word of God. The trick is to figure out how do we obey the Word of God in this situation, right? We submit ourselves to the authorities. No exceptions. I don't like to think of civil disobedience as an exception to the command to submit to the authorities. Because when we disobey any authority, we are appealing to another authority. It's all about submission to authority. But if the city of Lincoln says, well, here in Firth, you've got to have a a bathroom that's both male and female, and you've got to let biological males use the female bathroom, and all that type of thing, well, that's their authority, and we have a certain authority here over our own building, and we have a certain authority at the state that we can appeal to, and we have authorities that, that we can go to and, and have this battle of authorities, so to speak. But it's all still about the authorities that exist. God has established authorities. Let me illustrate this with you by pastoral authority. All right? I am a pastor. I am an elder in this church. Other elders, raise your hand. We have a certain authority in this organization. We have been appointed to that authority by the vote of the congregation, by the bylaws of our church. That appointed authority is from God. And it is not to be disrespected. It is not to be disobeyed. When you resist appointed authority, you're resisting God. But my authority is not absolute. My authority is not supreme. If I start acting contrary to the bylaws of our church, well, what happens to my authority? I get disciplined by the authority of the laws of our church. Same way with government officials. If I come over to your house and I say, here's the job you're going to take, here's the car you're going to drive, here's the person you're going to marry. You say, well, Timothy, I respect your authority in the church, but basically that's none of your business. Get out of my house, right? You don't have to treat me like some kind of autocrat that has all authority over you, and that's not the way you have to treat your government. They don't have the authority to tell you certain things that are not their business, that are not their authority. And you can appeal to other authorities and say, I respect your authority, but here you're out of your authority. So the biblical command to submit to authority is 100% always to be followed. And when we disobey an authority, it is still respecting the proper authority that that person has. You don't have to give them authority they don't have, but you do have to respect the proper authority they do have when you're pointing that out. right? We're still submitting to the rulers when we choose to suffer under an unjust, immoral edict rather than to do something that is evil. We're still submitting to them. We're not toppling their government, we're not overthrowing them, we're not taking up force of arms. We suffer in the will of God. They've got the sword. If they want to punish us with the sword, then we take the punishment of the sword. We're not challenging their authority. We're challenging their morality. Now, does that mean that everyone gets to decide for themselves when government is accomplishing its purpose and when we can disregard its authority? Do we get to decide that we can disregard its authority? No, that is anarchy. So you don't have to give the government authority that it doesn't have, but you do have to recognize its proper authority. And you have to submit to its penalty when it is using the sword that God has given to it. Judges chapter 17, verse 6, and Judges chapter 21, verse 25 says a summary statement about the whole period of the Judges, 400 years in Israel's history, and God summarizes those centuries as, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Why do we have a government? Why do we have authority? Because we don't want this kind of chaos. We don't want this kind of anarchy. And so, we have to follow the chain of command. We can't just be out there as rogue elements, deciding for ourselves and not being concerned about the consequences. We are those who play by the rules. We play by the rules, and we're not lawless anarchists. We're doing what's right. We're acting as free men, but we're doing it according to the rules that God has set up in the society. I'm not as clear as I'd like to be in communicating this, and I'm still working on the clarity, but I think that these ideas are solid and sound and biblical. Now, let's take a look at an example of civil disobedience. Come with me to the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 45. I'm starting here because I don't want to start with the easy, obvious one. I like to show you that I'm doing my work. So we go back to 1 Samuel chapter 14. And here we've got a battle going on between Israel and the Philistines. Saul is king. His son Jonathan is a a prince, a leader in the army. And Jonathan, he wins a great victory for the people with his courage, his bravery. And as we come down through the chapter, as Israel has got the Philistines on the run, Saul ends up making a rash vow. Come down to verse 24. We'll pick it up there. The men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day, so Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people of Israel had tasted food. Now, when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the king's oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father's charge, the people, with the oath. So he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, "Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. I I, I put that in there, sorry. (laughs) Your father strictly charged the people with an oath saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found, for now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. And so they strike down the Philistines, and it goes on, and Saul builds an altar, and you come down, pick it up there in verse 43, and they're taking lots to find out why things are not right. And the lot comes on Jonathan. And Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what have you done? And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I will die. Notice Jonathan. He does not refuse to die. He says, the king's word is the king's word. It is law. I am subject to that law. Even though I think that was a really stupid thing to do, I'm willing to die in submission, subjection to the king's word. So this is an example. Jonathan is set forth in this chapter as a hero. And so I think in context, you can read his words as an encouragement for what we are supposed to do in this type of situation. If you find yourself in a situation where the governing authority makes up a stupid rule that is really going to hurt you, all right, I'm willing, I'm willing to suffer. But notice what the people do. Verse 45. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die? Oh, oh, I skipped verse 44. Saul said, God do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. So so Saul thinks his word is more important than the life of Jonathan and he's willing to put Jonathan to death. And I think this is a, a mistake on Saul's part. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die? Who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground. So the people as a whole, they stand up to Saul and say, "Uh uh-uh, nope, this is not good, this is not right, you can't do this. And what does Saul do? Does he kill all the people? No. When all the people together stand against a foolish order, the foolish order backs down. That's what happens. The people said to Saul, Jonathan won't die. As the Lord lives, there shall not fall... Now Saul had just made an oath, God do so to me and more, you shall surely die. And now the people make an oath, as the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines and the Philistines went to their own place. So this story is here in the Bible for a reason. It shows you that when the people know what is right and are willing to stand together for what's right, they can back down the oppressor. That's an important lesson. That's part of good citizenship 301, right? It's not what Romans 13 is about, but it's not in contrast. It's not in contradiction to Romans chapter 13 either. This is not an exception to submitting to the governing authorities. This is showing that even the authority itself is subject to the people. In some respects, that's part of how God has created a check and a balance on the power of rulers. They are not absolute like God is absolute. All right, let's take another example here. Come with me to the book of Acts, the obvious example. Acts chapter 5, verse 29. So here we are in the early church in the book of Acts. The gospel is being proclaimed in Jerusalem. Many thousands are getting saved. The apostles are doing signs and wonders among the people. And the religious establishment, who are not just the religious establishment, but who are also political authorities underneath the Roman government, so authority, authority, layers of authority that we're dealing with here, the apostles are arrested by the Jewish authorities because they don't want them preaching anymore about Jesus. They put them in prison, an angel of the Lord opens the prison doors and brought them out. They go and rearrest them and bring them back in. And they tell them there in verse 27, Acts chapter 5, verse 27, When they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them, but Gamaliel stands up and says, that's not a good idea. And they listen to Gamaliel. So we must obey God rather than men. Is this a contradiction? Is this an exception to what Paul says in Romans chapter 13? No. They are still subjecting themselves to the governing authorities because these apostles are willing to be arrested, they're willing to suffer, if the authorities want to punish them for their disobedience. The law is written in such a way, you do this or else this. And if you say, well, I'm not going to do that, so I will submit to or this, you're still submitting to the law. You're saying, I'll take the or this. The law gives you the choice. You do this or this. You're a free man. Say, well, I'm going to do this, so I'll take the punishment. That's the freedom that we have. That's not overthrowing the government. That's not overthrowing the law. That's not even, in one sense, disobeying the law. Because you're obeying the law saying, I'll pay the fine. I'll go to jail. I'll die in accordance with the law. Right? So it's not an exception to submission to the authorities. It is taking the or else. Now, in this case, God protects them through Gamaliel and they don't have to die at the hands of the council. And that's where we are before God. If God wants us to die for him, we'll die for him. If God wants us to live for him, we'll live for him. And God has set up the government. He set up the laws. He set up this council to threaten the apostles with death for preaching the gospel. That was God's appointment. God appointed these men to do this evil thing because God was going to bring good out of it. God was going to bring good out of this evil authority, this evil mandate, if you'd like to describe it in those terms. Now, we do not promote anarchy because we uphold the rule of law and we submit ourselves to the penalty of the law. Turn in the book of Acts to Acts chapter 25, verse 11. Acts 25, verse 11. Paul has been arrested for starting a riot in Jerusalem. Now, when a riot starts, usually the people who start it blame someone else. And so Paul didn't actually start the riot. The Jews started the riot. And they said, well, it's Paul's fault because he's such a bad guy, right? But who actually started the riot? The Jews did, right? So, Paul is being arrested for starting a riot, and and this is how things go sometimes. The rioters come and they're mad at you for what you believe, and so now it's your fault because there's rioters because they're mad about what you believe. Don't be surprised if that happens to us in our nation. And so, Paul, standing before the judge here in one of his many trials that are recorded in the book, notice this God is very wise. Why did God give us the example of Paul standing trial for doing what is right in the sight of God, for preaching the gospel? Why are so many chapters of the book of Acts filled with that? You know, the Bible, it's got to be a small book. There's so many things that happened in the first century church that could be written in here. Why this? Why does God include this? Because he knows Christians are going to need it. Christians in China are going to need it. Christians in Saudi Arabia are going to need it, and Christians in the United States are going to need it. What are you going to say? How are you going to act when you are arrested for being a Christian? The church needs this. This is why it's here. And so God gives us examples to follow. In Acts chapter 25, we want to pick it up there in verse 8. Paul argued in his defense. Paul starts his defense in the court. He says, Neither against the law of the Jews nor against the temple, nor against Caesar. He lists all the authorities, the Jewish authority, the temple authority, Caesar's authority. I have not committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, notice how politics enter in, right? Are the judges always only concerned about the law? No, they're kind of concerned about how does this look? How's this going to play out with politics? Right? So expect that. Don't be like, I can't believe a judge would do that. Have you read the Bible? This is what people do. So Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? The Jews wanted the trial in Jerusalem. You know? There's a lot of fights these days about where's the trial going to be. And you know, people are maneuvering and saying, well, we want this judge, or we want this district, and, and we'll get a favorable ruling here. Because we know that courts are biased, right? And it depends on where the trial is, the outcome of the trial, who the judge is. So the Jews wanted a trial in Jerusalem, and they asked Paul, you know, can we go up to Jerusalem and have the trial there? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. He doesn't just say, oh, whatever you want, Festus, I'm submissive to your government. No, he knows that he has rights, he has authority that he can appeal to, that Festus is not the only authority in town, Right? And so he says, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. I like that. As you yourself know very well. Paul lets him know that he sees what's going on here, right? If then I am a wrongdoer. This is the verse right here, verse 11. If I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. We are submissive to the authorities. If we have wronged the law, we are willing to take the penalty of the law. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. There's another authority we can appeal to, right? The High Court. I appeal to Caesar. So this is not an exception to Romans 13. This is Paul doing exactly what he commands us to do in Romans chapter 13. It's just that it's not always so simple. There are multiple authorities that we are submitting to and none of them are the last word. Another example of this, I think we did look at this one last week when we were in Jeremiah chapter 26. Remember how the Jews wanted to to put Jeremiah to death because they didn't like his message. They wanted to put Jesus to death. They didn't like his message. They wanted to put Jeremiah to death. They didn't like his message. They wanted to put the apostles to death. They didn't like their message. Hmm. Do you think anyone might ever want to put you to death? They don't like your message. Would that be out of the realm of possibility? Would that be unexpected, unusual? Don't be surprised by the fiery ordeal that comes upon you for your testing. But... Whenever you suffer according to the will of God, suffer well. Jeremiah is not rebelling against the authorities. He says, I'm in your hands. Do with me as seems good and right to you. Paul says, if I've broken the law, I'm willing to die. I will take the penalty. But Jeremiah lets them know, just like Paul let Festus know, you guys know I haven't done any crime deserving of death. You know it. And if you kill me, you'll have to answer to God. All right, so that's the doctrine of civil disobedience. And I've got the next two points here on our outline, which we can cover relatively quickly. Good Citizenship 301. Now that we recognize that there is a time where we disobey one aspect of the law and are willing to take the punishment that the law deals out, so we're still subject to the law even when we're disobeying what the law wants us to do, we're obeying the penalty... That's, that's civil disobedience and thus we show that it's not an exception to Romans chapter 13. And then I want to introduce this concept here in point number three of our outline, the doctrine of the lesser magistrate. This is something that I've heard some theologians talking about more recently, not something I heard years ago and seems like something that is important for our time and I want to raise some awareness about it. Now, before we talk about what exactly the doctrine of the lesser magistrate is here, I want you to think about the interesting verse here in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32. Here, they're describing the people, the census, the army, and, and just kind of how the government is laid out there in Israel and the tribes. And mentioning Issachar, the tribe of Issachar, this tribe is, is mentioned as being men who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. 200 chiefs and all their kinsmen under their command. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Men who understand the times to know what Israel ought to do. And so what many Christians have applied this verse to is that we need men like that today. We need Christians who understand the times and who know what Americans ought to do. And this phrase, understanding the times, as you look at it and compare it with its use in another part of Scripture, as it's used in Esther chapter 1, verse 13, I believe is the, the reference if you want to write that down, Esther chapter 1, verse 13, it refers to those who are familiar with the law and justice. They're familiar with the legal system. So Issachar had these men who were familiar with the legal system, the law and the justice, and they knew what the right thing to do was in those types of situations. And I think we, as good citizens... There should be some among us who know the law and the justice system and who know what the right thing for Christians to do in our culture so that we can be the best citizens this nation has ever seen. That's some application from a historical passage like this that leads into an understanding of our times. I want to try to step out of my authority here and a sphere that I'm not an expert in and to talk a little bit about our republic. What is the state of the Union? What is the state of our republic? Do you have understanding of our times so that we can know what a good citizen is supposed to do in this time and place? All right? I'm not preaching the Bible here. I'm talking about some social commentary. I want to let you, let you know that. That's clear. So it appears to me as I listen to those who are in positions of rich and powerful people that democracy is a word that has kind of had a subtle change in meaning, as it has been uh, originally used to describe a a government for the people, by the people. That democracy now seems to be the will of the people, uh, but only certain people. The will of the people who are buying into the globalist socialist narrative. That's democracy, according to what you hear from mainstream media. They love democracy, we're promoting democracy, we're for democracy. And democracy means what the people want as long as they're being shepherded and guided by the rich and powerful, the socialist Marxist rulers and elites. That's democracy. And if you are not buying into the globalist socialist narrative, well then you are against democracy. And they think this is democracy because they think they have the power to control what the people think. They think they have the power to control what people believe. They think they have the power to shepherd the people into wanting what they want. And if they can manipulate people into wanting what they want, well, then they love democracy. But if you don't go along with what they want and you think differently than what they want you to think, then you're against democracy. Very important to understand how words are used and how people are manipulated and the times in which we live. This is not the original meaning of democracy. Again, stepping out of my role as a Bible teacher, if you'll allow me to do so for a moment. I've written a Socialist Declaration of Dependence. The Declaration of Independence is one of the greatest documents that has been written in political history. And here is a socialist rewrite. It's not a Declaration of Independence. It's a Declaration of Dependence. We hold these truths to be social constructs that all people are to have equal outcomes, that they are endowed by their government with certain alienable rights, not inalienable, alienable, that among these are, fill in the blank, whatever is fashionable and leads to greater power and perceived legitimacy of the central government. That to publish these rights, media companies are employed by the government, which derives its powers from the consent of the misinformed. Whenever any form of government becomes destructive to the globalist socialist ends, it is the right of the bureaucrats to alter or to abolish it and to institute new rules, laying their foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as shall seem most likely to affect the safety and happiness of the ruling class. You want to understand the times. You want to understand where America is. Our nation is in a cold civil war. The cold civil war is not a hot war because we're not shooting at each other. But it's a cold war because powers, authorities are maneuvering and playing the political game in order to move our United States of America away from a constitutional republic and into the globalist socialist new world order. All right? You might say, "Well, Timothy, it sounds like you've been listening to conspiracy theories on the internet." Do men conspire? Read through history. Do people who are in positions of power and authority conspire to increase their power and authority? Is that consistent with biblical narrative, the nature of human beings? Should we expect people who are in positions of power and authority to conspire with other people in positions of power and authority in order to increase their power and authority and to secure that power and authority? Yes, we should. So I don't know everything that's going on behind closed doors. I don't think that I've got it all figured out. But I think that it's pretty clear that the globalist socialist takeover of Western civilization is just about at the tipping point where they have enough control to take off the disguise. That's where we are. And so it's important that Christians know the times. Alex Mason has written some good things on this subject i not saying everything Alex Mason says or thinks is good. Why is it that we live in a time where if you're going to quote somebody, people assume that you're completely acknowledging that they're right about everything or that they're wrong about everything. No one's right about everything. No one's wrong about everything. We can quote people just because we like the quote, not because we think that they are sinless and perfect. All right? So Alex Mason said, We must initiate a resourcement of scripturally attuned political theology and ethics the people who set up our Constitutional Republic, they had a scripturally attuned political theology and ethic. And we have been lazy. We've taken it for granted. And we're losing it. And it's just about gone. And so I agree with Alex Mason that if good citizenship 301 in our day, while we're submissive to the governing authorities, we're not challenging their right to rule, we recognize that they don't have all the authority yet. And it would be better for our citizens, for our nation, for our countrymen, for our neighbors, if they didn't get all of that authority, and that if wise people would stand up and keep them from taking that authority and transforming America into a globalist socialist nation. That would be good for people. It would be good for the world. It would be good for everybody. So we must initiate a resourcement of scripturally attuned political theology and ethics drawn from the deep, rich well of the Reformation. One of those is the doctrine of the lesser magistrate. What is the doctrine? of the lesser magistrate. The doctrine of the lesser magistrate states this. Whenever a superior magistrate, a magistrate is a ruling authority, a government authority, whenever a superior magistrate persecutes his subjects, then by the law of nature, by divine law, and by the true religion and worship of God, the inferior magistrate ought by God's mandate to resist him. That God has set up authorities and competing authorities and that for a lesser authority to obey a superior authority in carrying out an evil command, that is wrong. You say, well, I thought we're supposed to submit to the governing authorities. Yes, we are supposed to submit to the governing authorities. But governing authorities themselves have a duty. They have a responsibility to not just follow orders and do evil. After World War II, many of the Nazi leaders were put on trial. And their defense at trial was, it wasn't my choice. I was just following orders. And the judges at that trial rightly said, is there not a law that is higher than our laws? You lesser magistrates we were responsible to resist the evil orders that were being handed down to you. And you are guilty before the court of this world for carrying out those evils. You won't find the doctrine of the lesser magistrate spelled out in Scripture, but you will find principles that support it. You will find principles that are scripturally attuned as Alex Mason puts it. I want to show you one example. 2 Kings chapter 11 records a very dark time in the history of the kingdom of Israel, a time when the queen mother, a true villain, took the throne. Let's read it, starting there in chapter 11, verse 1. Now when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal family. But Jehosheba, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons who were being put to death. And she put him and his nurse in a bedroom. Thus they hid him from Athaliah, so that he was not put to death. And he remained with her six years, hidden in the house of the Lord, while Athaliah reigned over the land. But in the seventh year, Jehoiada sent and brought the captains of the Kerites and of the guards and had them come to him in the house of the Lord. And he made a covenant with them and put them under oath in the house of the Lord. And he showed them the king's son and he commanded them, this is the thing that you shall do. One third of you, those who come off duty on the Sabbath and guard the king's house, another third being at the gate of Sewer, and a third at the gate behind the guards shall guard the palace. And the two divisions of you, which come on duty in force on the Sabbath and guard the house of the Lord on behalf of the king, shall surround the king, each with his weapons in his hand. And whoever approaches the ranks is to be put to death. Be with the king when he goes out and when he comes in. The captains did according to all that Jehoiada the priest commanded. And they each brought his men who were to go off duty on the Sabbath with those who were to come on duty on the Sabbath. This is fascinating. Make a great movie. And the priests gave to the captains the spears and shields that had been King David's, which were in the house of the Lord. And the guards stood, every man with his weapon in his hand, from the south side of the house to the north side of the house, around the altar and the house on behalf of the king. Then he brought out the king's son and put the crown on him and gave him the testimony. And they proclaimed him king and anointed him. And they clapped their hands and said, Long live the king! Now, when Athaliah heard the noise of the guard and of the people... She went into the house of the Lord to the people. And when she looked, there was the king standing by the pillar according to the custom, and the captains and the trumpeters beside the king, and all the people of the land rejoicing and blowing trumpets. And Athaliah tore her clothes and cried, Treason! Treason! Then Jehoiada the priest commanded the captains who were set over the army, Bring her out between the ranks and put to death with the sword, anyone who follows her. For the priest said, let her not be put to death in the house of the Lord. So they laid hands on her and she went through the horse's entrance to the king's house and there she was put to death. When the queen mother is putting to death all of the heirs of David's line, do you obey that queen mother? and Say, well, here's the son you want to kill. No, you don't. You hide that child. And you're smart. You don't foolishly think it's easy to overthrow someone who's been conniving and manipulative and who's been maneuvering the chessboard so that she is king and no one can challenge her. You've got to be smart about it. And at the right time, in the right place, you set up the new authority and you put to death the wicked. This story's in here for a reason. The lesser magistrate, in this case, Jehoiada, and others who chose the right and not submission to the wrong. We want to be good stewards of our republic. We want to be wise about it. We want to understand what has been entrusted to us, what a blessing it has been to the world. It's no small thing to be entrusted with the Constitution of the United States of America and all the good that has come from it, the Bill of Rights. What are you willing to die for? I'd like to close with a prayer by Clement of Rome. It's a rather long prayer. Bow your heads with me. Grant unto us, O Lord, that we may set our hope on your name, which is the primal source of all creation, and open the eyes of our hearts that we may know you, you who alone abide highest in the lofty, holy in the holy, you who lay low the insolence of the proud, who set the lowly on high, and bring the lofty low, you who make rich and make poor, you who kill and who make alive, who alone art the benefactor of spirits and the God of all flesh. You, O God, looked into the abyss. You scan the works of man. You are the help of them that are in peril, the savior of them that are in despair, the creator and overseer of every spirit who multiplies the nations upon earth and has chosen out from all men those that love you through Jesus Christ, your beloved son, through whom you have instructed us, sanctified us, and honored us. Thus we beseech you, Lord and Master, to be our help. Save those among us who are in tribulation. Have mercy on the lowly, lift up the fallen, show yourself unto the needy, heal the ungodly, convert the wanderers of your people, feed the hungry, release our prisoners, raise up the weak, comfort the faint-hearted. Let all the nations, O Lord, know that you alone are God and that Jesus Christ is your Son and we are your people and the sheep of your pasture. So that through your operations you have made manifest the everlasting fabric of the world. Thou, O Lord, you created the earth. You are faithful throughout all generations. You are righteous in your judgments. You are marvelous in strength and excellence. You are wise in creating and prudent in establishing that which you have made. And you are good in the things which are seen and faithful with them that trust in thee. Pitiful and compassionate. So forgive us our iniquities and our unrighteousness and our transgressions and our shortcomings. Lay not to our account every sin of your servants and your handmaids, but cleanse us, O Lord, with the cleansing of your truth and guide our steps to walk in holiness and righteousness and singleness of heart and to do such things as are good and well-pleasing in your sight and in the sight of our rulers. Yes, Lord. Make your face to shine upon us in peace for our good that we may be sheltered by your mighty hand and delivered from every sin by your uplifted arm and deliver us from them that hate us wrongfully. Give concord and peace to us and all that dwell on the earth as you gave to our fathers when they called on you in faith and truth with holiness that we may be saved while we render obedience to your almighty and most excellent name and to our rulers and governors upon the earth. You, Lord and Master, have given them the power of sovereignty through thine excellent and unspeakable might, that we might know the the glory and honor which you have given them. We submit ourselves unto them in nothing resisting your will. Grant unto them, therefore, O Lord, health, peace, concord, stability, that they may administer the government which you have given them without failure. For you, O heavenly Master, King of the ages, give to the sons of men glory and honor and power over all things that are upon the earth. Do thou, Lord, direct their counsel according to that which is good and well-pleasing in your sight, that administering in peace and gentleness with godliness the power which you have given them, they may obtain your favor. O Lord, who alone art able to do these things, and things far more exceedingly good than these, for us we praise you through the high priest and guardian of our souls jesus christ through whom be the glory and the majesty unto you both now and for all generations and forever and ever amen amen that prayer was prayed in the first century of the church just as good today in the 21st century of the church